Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to Fire Five. I'm Steve Horney, your host for this evening out of Integrated Health Sciences, and I would like to welcome Stephanie Roden to the show. How are you doing today, Stephanie? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Likewise, it's good. I get to hear your voice. I get to see your face. It's even better. So I've known Stephanie for a few years now. I fell into the typical trap of someone who was starting a clinic but didn't really have a ton of money. So I tried to legal Zoom my way through and Google my way through opening up a practice, which I think is pretty common, partially because I thought that there was no way that I could possibly afford a lawyer. I only pictured lawyers as big, huge law firms where you get charged to even go in and walk in the door. And then someone introduced me to Stephanie, who's a different type of lawyer who practiced law the same way that I practice physical therapy, or I like to think that I practice physical therapy, which is thorough and personal, but also significantly more accessible than the average huge mega, we'll say clinic or mega firm. Um, I didn't even know that people like Stephanie existed, but I'm glad that they do. So Stephanie, tell us your bio just a little bit. Spare no detail. People are here to hear what you have to say. Um, sure. So again, my name is Stephanie Roden. I'm the owner of Roden Legal PC. As of this year, I've been open 10 years on my own, which is, uh, which is a milestone for me. <laughs> uh, prior to opening up my own law firm, I did a lot of litigation work where I worked with healthcare practitioners in making sure they were protected when they were being sued by patients for malpractice. And by working with them as much as I did, I realized that there were some issues that would always come up about the practices. A lot about the business management. They didn't have the right contracts, the right consent forms. They didn't have the right legal entity, things of that nature. And um, doing the litigation for close to 10 years, I realized I wanted to focus more on the transactional side to better protect the practitioners on that than on the litigation. And so that basically was the springboard for my firm. And I opened up, as I said, 10 years ago to focus on the business management. So now all I do is concentrate on providing the contracts, the advice, um, setting up the legal entities, the consent forms, really making sure that each practice or individual practitioner has everything that they need to protect themselves so that you can concentrate on the patient care and not worry about all those legal issues that may come down the pike. Yeah, and that was something that I was very impressed and still to this day, something I stress to my friends who are opening up their own clinics that a general liability waiver may give you something, but it really should be tailored to what you do, to the things that you do that might open you up to a little bit more risk. Like we do gua sha, that needs to be in our waiver. We do other things where that needs to be in our waiver. And sometimes they need to not only be in the waiver, but also followed up with an in-person initial just to kind of doubly protect ourselves. So I was always really happy with that approach that you took. Is there anything you can tell us before we get into our kind of like COVID base and opening up practice, but just the person who's starting out, who's opening up their clinic right now, just like for me, if I were to talk to them, my buddy comes up to me and says, hey, I one of the main things that I make sure that they do is find the right 
people to help them out. Like you need a good accountant from the start. You need a good lawyer from the start and you need to make sure that you're abiding by these rules. Is there something that kind of comes to mind where you see a lot of common pitfalls as far as people starting out? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one is that unfortunately no one is taught what they need when they open up a practice. So it's a lot of unknowns. So they don't really know what questions to ask. They don't really know who they need to have in their corner. They don't really know how to put that foundation in, you know, and if you're starting your own practice, the, you know, the main five things that come into play is setting up the legal entity where you need the attorney and the accountant in providing the consent forms that you mentioned before, which isn't just about the treatment, but also about office policies, financial form, waivers for, you know, testimonials, HIPAA privacy notice and everything about that, that all patients are used to now, but that protects not just the patient, but the practice and the individual practitioners. Um, you know, if you're going into a commercial space, there's going to be review of a sublease or commercial lease. And if you're hiring anyone, whether they're an independent contractor or an employment agreement, you're going to need those in place. And those are typically the first things that you need to consider when you start opening up a practice to lay the groundwork and the foundation so you have everything in play so that you can actually start the treatment and know that you have things to protect you in the practice that you don't have to worry about. And sorry, no, so the 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 thing that comes up most, as I said before, is that <clears throat> they don't know that they need that. So having that initial conversation with an attorney to say, hey, I don't know what I need, but I know that I want to open up a practice. What is it? It's very pertinent to understand all of those lines because each one of them protects a different aspect of the practice that allows you to provide your services. And take it from me, it's so much easier and it's even cheaper in the long run to just do it right one time because you kind of just want to set it in forget it. But if you set it to the wrong setting and forget it, it can end up causing you a ton of struggle down the road. So what do you find most challenging for your clients when they're opening up their practice? Probably actually forming the legal entity because in New okay. York, it's really challenging. Right. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure you realize this. And the yeah. reason why it's so challenging is because the Department of Education is involved and they are incredibly rigid. They um, have very particular rules and they're not run by anything. So it's their own agency and they have to approve and confirm the license of any of all the paperwork and anyone who wants to open up. And because of that, it takes on average two to three months. Mm -hmm. So now there's a, the time lapse which a lot of the clients aren't aware of or know, especially if they want this to happen as in yesterday. Yeah. And waiting for the paperwork, making sure that it gets approved, making sure that there's no confusion in the marketplace, making sure that the client doesn't start using the name before the approval mm -hmm. is also because you're so anxious to start going, you know, that the waiting is always, you know, an issue. So I find once we get the name and once the paperwork gets in, things tend to go a little bit smoother after that. But getting to that point is always a little bit because they may not be able to use the name that they want. We have to sort of play around with the name and then there's the branding aspect and how they want to go and getting the website and everything else. So to me, that's the hardest part in just making sure that they're comfortable with the name because that's how they are starting their practice. Once you get that, it can go a little bit, you know, smoother and an easier, more sufficient type of way. And when would you recommend? Because I, I think that, uh, I think that I'm 
a very typical case where I was working for someone else. I was managing a larger clinic and I had my side hustle going. I mean, I would, on the way into work, I would strength train with someone or do some physical therapy. It was really just strength training. Like I would, but it was still considered physical therapy on the way in, on the way out, on the weekends. I think everyone in New York kind of works two jobs. And when would you recommend, and and I have a feeling I kind of can guess when, what you're going to say, but I think it's important for people to hear. When would you recommend people take that leap into actually making themselves official? I would say in like three to four months before you really want to go out is when you should start. It gives you the good cushion with the Department of Education, with getting all the forms together, with finding a a commercial space. I mean, if possible, I would say six months. But if you, a lot of people don't know and they're nervous and it's something, but I would say at minimum three to four months, but the longer you can, the better. Shouldn't be more than six months because it won't take that long to put it all together. That's good. And it's nice to hear you, you talk about that whole process. It, it is, does publish, is publishing something that's only a New York thing and New Jersey? And I know you're barred in New York. You may not know the answers, but what is this? What's the deal with, with having to publish your. So, in, so New York, yeah. in New York, there's a publication for the LLC, which mm-hmm. for licensed professionals is the PLLC, the professional mm-hmm. limited liability company. New York is also the only state within the within the area of the northeast that uses the p everyone else has just the llc right most other states including new jersey including connecticut there is no publication requirement it's just new york um i really can't explain why it's like that quite honestly um it does increase the startup cost for for the plc you know and the plc or the llc has only been around for you know maybe 35 years and it's the hybrid of a corporate structure and the sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly popular because it gives you the corporate protection, but the flexibility of being a sole proprietor, right. which is why a lot of people like to use it. So this publication requirement is just adding on something that may or may not, I don't want to say it's not necessary because in New York, it's a requirement. It has to be done within 120 days of formation. If it's not done, the legal entity is not considered to be fully formed and functional. So you have to have it, but it's one of the only states that really have it. Yeah. And that just in a personal, in case anyone is listening, feel free to drop in the comments below exactly why that still needs to be so expensive and so prohibitive. I'm not saying that announcing yourself isn't a good thing to do. It seems like technology might be able to make that a little bit better. But again, anyone who's in government, feel free to chime in and help us out because I know that for me, that is having that chunk of money hanging around takes a significantly longer time than if it was a $300 or $400 as in New Jersey and things like that. So either way, it is what it is. So has COVID-19 impacted the way your clients are providing treatment to their patients? A little bit. (laughs) I don't want to say that they have changed their treatment. Obviously, the goal is still to provide the best treatment that you can to all of your patients, regardless of what's going on. But the changes because of COVID are now adding these extra precautions, having, you know, more conversations with the patients, with your employees, you know, prior to even providing the services that they're hiring you for and that they're going to you for because everyone has a little, you know, everyone's in fear. Everyone has, you know, everyone's a little scared. Everyone's a little squeamish because of all this. And, you know, so a lot of 
a lot of the a lot of my clients are putting into place, you know, different guidelines and protocols for the office, not just for the patients, but also for the staff and putting together, you know, liability forms for COVID. Um, so this way, everyone knows exactly what's going on and the potential risks that are involved in it. You know, there are some offices I know of that would not see any patient unless they came in with a negative COVID test yeah. that was taken within the week before, you know, the actual appointment. You know, so there's there's been a change in that sense in order to protect the practitioner, the office, the staff, the patient. So in that sense, it's changed. The services as a whole haven't changed, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, now everyone is more cautious with wearing the PPE, making sure that they have all the masks and the gloves that the patients do as well, that, you know, everyone is covered. I know for dentists, everyone is wearing the shields. Yeah. You know, when they're when they're performing the work, I mean, they're redoing the office spaces with different type of AC so that the air is circulated better. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot more expense going into these offices now to make sure that everyone is protected. So in that sense, yes, you know, which should make the patients feel a lot better. But unfortunately, you know, there is no cure, as we know, there's no vaccine, there's no um, guarantee that they're not going to actually get it. But all this is, is to reduce the ability, you know, that they have and to let them think and know that they're safe and that the practices are doing everything that they can in order to provide that safety to them. Yeah. And I think people are getting clever, such as myself. And one, I wouldn't mind if you touched on some of the legal aspects of telehealth in a second, but I, just to give a little bit of context, have moved my practice outside whenever possible. Today, I treated literally on the southwest corner of Morton, Washington. There's a little nook. It's pretty nice. I thought the neighbors would end up being actually kind of pissed off that we were there. And I've gotten nothing but smiles and doggy sniffs every single minute of every single day. It's, it's pretty nice. I think that a lot of the people, maybe again, it's the West Village, Midtown, I wouldn't think that it would be the same thing. But in the West Village, I think a lot of people are business owners and I think they know how hard this has been for everyone. Mm -hmm. And seeing a small business owner such as myself, just figuring out a way to make it work. I think that people are pretty supportive of that. And if you would have asked me, what, 18, 20 years ago, I started my journey in physical therapy school for my bachelor's. If you would have told me 20 years ago that one day this boy from New Jersey would be treating on a New York City street corner with a fold up table. <laughs> I don't think that I would have believed you, but it, it, you know what? It, it works. And I think everyone's just trying to figure out how to make it work. Now the telehealth, that's something I do two days a week. I'm still very active with that. It's good. It's not great is how I would describe it, but what are the legal vulnerabilities with that that maybe I wouldn't know of or other people wouldn't see? So with telehealth, um, you know, there should be a separate consent form for it, obviously. Um, the form should lay out all of the risks and consequences of telehealth. And the biggest one is, you know, you're doing everything by video, just like we're doing it now, right? There could be a problem with the video. It could be a bad communication. Maybe it's staticky. Maybe the visual is bad. Maybe there's static in the background or you can't hear me properly or vice versa, right? Um, if you're trying to treat someone or diagnose them, if the picture isn't clear, you may miss something. Maybe you're missing a tremor to know that there's something going on or that there's a certain pain or they can't move a certain way because they're 
sitting still. They're not really doing something. So there's there's a lot in telehealth that is great because one, especially during this environment, you're able to still treat the patient or at least let the patient know you're still there for them. You can still answer questions. You can still see each other face to face. You can still advise and give them, you know, recommendations, but there is a limit to it. You know, when it comes to the legalities behind it, the biggest one is HIPAA. Because mm -hmm. on the video conferencing, you have to use a HIPAA compliant platform. You know, Zoom isn't HIPAA compliant. If you have an EMR system, generally they will have some type of video conferencing platform to use, and that's the best way to do it because it's through the systems. Those systems are HIPAA compliant. But you have to make sure that the patient is aware that there could be a problem. There may be people walking in the background who will then see you, will hear things. So is that a breach of HIPAA? You know, you, you need to know that by having the video conference, maybe it's cut off, maybe there's a breach somewhere. Just like with email or text messaging, you know, you wanna make sure that they're aware of that possibility as well. Um, the one thing that happened with COVID is that with telehealth, you typically, you go by where the patient resides as far as the licensing. So if you were in Connecticut, and you were treating someone who lives in New York and your telehealth, as long as that patient was in New York and you're licensed in New York, it doesn't matter where you are mm -hmm. because you're providing the services in the state that you're licensed at and that's where the patient is. Under COVID, they sort of relaxed some of those rules. So this way, because there were so many changes and issues and no one was leaving the home, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the license there if you're mm -hmm. treating a patient that you had treated before, but you needed to have that relationship beforehand. Once things are, I don't want to say back to normal because I'm hoping that we will learn from all of this and things will change, but once things are a little bit more on the, on the normalcy side and go back, those rules will most likely revert back to how they were pre-COVID. And so practitioners definitely need to understand those changes so that if it does happen, that they're still going to be, you know, within the confines of being able to treat through telehealth. Um, it has been a life savior for, I would say, almost all of my clients mm -hmm. in the beginning when COVID started. Um, a lot of them are still doing it like yourself, where they're still doing it part time, because I'm sure there are many patients that don't want to come in, especially if they're older. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it does help with the treatment in that sense to continue the care, but you do have to be careful with it. And the patient has to understand exactly what those risks are. And if it comes to a point where it's not feasible to continue through telehealth or you don't feel it's in their best interest or vice versa, it can always be discontinued. You can always start doing it in person. Maybe you have a phone consult instead of the video conference or something else, but it's really important to understand what what the parameters are before you start doing it. And when things do go back to, I'll <laughs> air quotes, normal, what are you hoping will continue that we've maybe learned from this experience and, and can apply to our healthcare system to perhaps make it better in the future? Well, I mean, as a whole, I think healthcare practitioners are always about, obviously, the health of their patients. But because of what happened, I think these extra precautions have really made it much more prevalent in the cleansing of offices, in making sure that things are, you know, sanitized, things are cleaned. And when I say things, which I sort of hate that word, but when I say things, I mean, you know, doorknobs, uh, counter space, you know, things that are touched by people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. 
not having people wait in the waiting room, maybe not having people come with guests or visitors with them, you know, to decrease the number of people so that it's an easier space, it's a more cleanlier space, it's a space that's freer and not as crowded for people to feel unsafe or, you know, that they're at risk of something. And I think that's going to be the biggest change moving forward because they're doing it now that I don't see it changing that much in the future, even if they go back, because most people are going to be used to not having anyone there. You know, not waiting in the waiting room. And maybe now, maybe doctor's office will be a little bit more on time with their appointments. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're cute. That's great. <laughs> That's cool. So what can practitioners do to protect themselves against this new climate of patient care? <clears throat> so as I was saying earlier, uh, you know, having office protocols and guidelines or having the, the consent form. So within the office guidelines, you know, you want to have something written for both the patient and the staff to know what the office is doing to protect them. You know, what the what the rules are. Are they washing their hands consistently? Are you wearing a masks and gloves? Are you desanitizing the doorknobs, the light switches, the countertops? You know, when someone comes in in person and you're filling out forms, let them keep the pen. Don't mm -hmm. put the pen back because you don't want other people touching it. You know, like little things like that that's going to make everyone in the office, regardless of their role, feel safer because they know that everything's being cleaned. You know, how often is it being cleaned? If you're going to a doctor's office and, you know, the doctor has an MA or a PA, whoever that may be, the medical assistant or the physician's assistant, you know, you want to make sure that they're always working together. Don't keep mixing doctors and PAs and MAs around because if you do, you're not going to be able to have the tracing should there be an exposure. And this way, it's the same people working together at the same time that they can actually be more efficient. They know how each other's work. They don't have to worry about someone else coming into the mix and either changing it or they haven't worked with them, exposing them to something because they haven't been with them. And so you want to keep things like that in line. You know, and this is all to... To help with the protection you know my as i indicated before my entire firm is built around protecting yeah. is protecting as much as possible now you know you're never going to be able to get rid of every risk you're never going to be able to you know decrease completely all liability but the idea is to decrease it is to lower it as much as possible by putting into place as many things as you can that informs the patient and your staff of what you're doing and that puts things into perspective so that you can foresee problems so you want to have that into the guidelines and the protocols especially now you know when it comes to the covid consent form if the patient's coming in for a non-emergency type of procedure or treatment it's them. They're doing it voluntarily, you know, and they know that they have the right to not come in. They can sit at home. They can have a telehealth or, you know, or something else. So by them coming in on their own, it's important that they understand that just by them coming in, by commuting in, by traveling in, exposes them potentially to this very contagious virus. So they may be exposed having nothing to do with the practice. So just because they're coming in doesn't mean that if they do get exposed and they do actually have the virus and test positive, it wasn't necessarily from the practice. So the idea is to make sure that everyone's aware of this. You know, they come in, they have their fever, you know, their temperature taken, you know, make sure that they don't have the fever, making sure, um, you know, they haven't traveled to states that are on the New York state ban list that you have to quarantine, that they haven't been exposed to someone who's already been tested positive for COVID or that they haven't been tested positive. 
and the staff is asked the same questions. It goes both ways, you know, to make sure. And that's important. Again, it's not to eliminate the risk, but to reduce it and to let everyone be on notice about the, the potential risks of having an in-person treatment because of this. And that's the best way to really help the practices. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I think my attitude was always I don't want there to be a doubt in the person's mind. Let's say that one of my patients ended up getting COVID. I don't even want them for a moment to think that it possibly could have come because of our interaction, because we've been so transparent with how hard we're going at trying to protect ourselves and them. And I, I think that maybe almost like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Patients are smarter than we maybe think that they are, can handle. They can handle a lot more information about this disease than necessarily you would think that they would even want. But if you really take the moment, that five minutes to explain, like on Tuesdays, I get tested every Tuesday. It's a rapid test. I make sure to tell everyone on that Tuesday, just thought I'd let you know on my way in, I got a rapid test. It was negative. I'm also wearing an N95 mask and with a KN95 mask over it. The N95 protects me, the KN95 protects you. Just walking them through that, even explaining what sort of sanitizer we're using, that it's hospital grade. It's the, the type of sanitizer that they would use if someone who had HIV unfortunately bled out. That's what they would end up using mm -hmm. to sanitize it. It's just trying to make it so... And, and I think there's a lot that needs to be, people need to be comfortable during physical therapy. This is just another unfortunate discomfort that, that we're all dealing with and something that I think we as physical therapists, because we have time to talk to the person a little bit more, um, it, it, it behooves us to be educational in nature. And especially when there's so much misinformation going on right now, I mean, I, I, I can't even, I know it sounds crazy, but like I had someone recently try and convince me that this was a hoax and it was really uncomfortable. I would say, um, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, my old boss passed away from it. My buddy was in the hospital for three weeks. Numerous of my in-laws have ended up getting it. One of my buddies, and this is one of the things that, that's kind of really interesting. One of my buddies is actually an undertaker. Um, he's a mortician and his talks about what this was back in, in April to him it's, I know it sounds weird. I hopefully I don't have to convince anyone who's listening right now, but it's not a hoax. It's a very serious thing. It affects different people differently and that's okay. Most diseases do, but taking this seriously should be done whether you're a healthcare practitioner or not. So. No, I, I definitely agree. And also with your particular fields, because you're using a lot of equipment or the table or things that other patients used before or will be using after, it's incredibly important to sanitize and that the patients either see it being sanitized or that they know about it. So this way there is no thought thinking in their head, if I touch this table or I get on this table, I may get something or someone breathed on and it's still in the air or whatever it is that their mind mm -hmm. may think. And it's incredibly important you know, for that purpose, not just for obviously for PTs, but for any doctor that they're aware of that because there are so many things that are being touched by so many people yeah. that they need to make sure that, you know, look, yes, we use this on this, you know, patient right before you or this client right before you and look, we're sanitizing it. You know, this is what we're using. And so this way they have that, that knowledge and that's going to help decrease the fear 
you know, and hopefully to make the session or the appointments, you know, with whatever doctor that they have be a lot smoother and not be so crazed and cringing. And, you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are nervous about it, you know, and they can't relax at all. And they're incredibly, you know, stressed and like, I'm sure their muscles are very tight. And if they're going for PT, that's not going to help in the session <laughs> Yeah, exactly. because it defeats the purpose. So hopefully having all of that in place will help overall with not just their fear, but also with having a more successful session and appointment with their doctor. Yeah. A amen. So for practitioners who are just starting their career, are you finding any changes that they should be aware of? So for, for newbies, for new practitioners, uh, you know, generally there's always an employment agreement or an independent contractor agreement, mm -hmm. right? You know, if they're going to be, um, let's go with employees because it's a little bit easier. So you're going to have a contract. Every contract has, you know, good and bad issues. There's, you know, whether it's the non-competes or the benefits or the salary, there's always something, right? And you always want to make sure that everything's in writing. Now, because of what happened with COVID, where a lot of the practitioners had to shut down, some people were furloughed, some were reduced hours, some had reduced, you know, compensation, even, you know, because they weren't working as much or because the practices wanted to make sure that they stayed afloat. There are some new clauses that are being put in these contracts to protect the practices. So should this happen again, if there's another outbreak, if there's another pandemic, if there's a terrorist attack or something that is out of their control and not necessarily foreseeable, they want to make sure that they have the ability to decrease someone's compensation, decrease maybe the benefits, mm -hmm. you know, be able to change the hours if they need to in order to make sure that the practice stays afloat without having to terminate their employees. So it benefits the employee because they will still be receiving money, but obviously it's not at the same terms as the original contract. And so this is something that I'm seeing and I'm actually putting into contracts as well time and time again in order to protect the practices from going under because there are a lot that had to close as a result of what happened back in March and April. Um, so that's something that, you know, the new practitioners really need to keep in mind when they're seeing it. It's not to penalize them and saying, oh, we have to decrease your salary. It's actually to protect their position so that they can continue to make money and provide services because the practice will be able to afford to continue to pay them, maybe at a, a slight decrease of what was originally decided. You know, and uh, some contracts, they're calling this the force majeure clause, which is that same concept, right? It's just making sure that if a pandemic or something happens, you know, there's, they're gonna be able to make these decisions to help the practice. Outside of that, there hasn't really been any other changes as a result of COVID per se. Um, it's really just the same issues that come up to make sure, you know, again, if you're going in for a new employment, anything that the potential employer says to you, you want to make sure all of that is in writing when you sign a contract. You know, if they promise you the sun and moon, have it in writing. <laughs> um, but, but not anything more specific when it comes to COVID, except for, you know, the ability to really make those amendments when needed. Yeah, in general. So that was a good synopsis of as far as newer employee, you know, someone just graduated, they're a new doctor, they're a new physical therapist, any medical provider. We talked a little bit about 
when people are starting up. So that's another phase of people's career when they're starting their own business or getting going. For people who have been in business and who might be listening now, what advice would you give to them about where they may have blind spots in their vulnerability and how they can check that other than just call you, which we'll get there in a minute, but also just kind of in general, the things that you see when you open up and you say, hey, send me all this stuff. We're kind of doing our check by check. And then you see these gaps consistently. Uh, I mean, it's it, there's there's a number of them. So, you know, uh, first, if it's an employment agreement, let's say they're moving from job to job. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you have to review the prior employment agreement to see about the non-compete or the non-solicitation clause or, you know, do they owe the practice any money if they end up leaving? How much notice do they have to give before they before they leave? You know, and then you want to review the new contract to make sure you're protected. And sometimes they may not go hand in hand, especially if the new contract wants you to start in a month, but you have to give 90 days notice of the old one. Yeah. So you need to make sure that certain things and that you understand the legal consequences with both. That's mm -hmm. first. You know, you want to make sure that you understand about malpractice policy of whether it's an occurrence policy versus a claims made policy, because if you have to pay for tail coverage, that's going that may be an extra expense you have to pay leaving one job before you start the next job and providing proof that you have coverage from the post job. Because if you go into a new job without coverage, the trust me, that's not going to be a good sign. <laughs> um, you want to make sure that you have other insurance in place, disability policy, maybe life insurance, health insurance, depending upon how that goes. Will you have to get COBRA? You know, there's a lot of things to, to really consider. Um, when I Personally, when I work with my clients, especially during employment, I always like to ask them questions about, you know, where they are in their life at that time, not just if it's their first job or if they've been practicing for five years and they're now moving. But, you know, do they have a will in place? Are they married? Do they have children? You know, are they protected on other aspects? Do they are their personal assets protected if they're opening up their own firm? You know, you want to make sure not only do they have the legal entity, but they set up the right bank account. They're working with a bank that understands them. I mean, there's so many things involved. And again, that goes to the foundation that we discussed earlier, mm -hmm. that it's not just when you open up a practice, but when you have your career, because you have gone to school and you have spent X number of dollars to get this degree to perform these services. If you're not able to perform them in a way to continue for the rest of your life or for however long that you want to do it, then you just basically wasted all of this time and money. And that's not the purpose of why you went to school because you did it because you love it. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of legal issues or financial issues can get in the way of seeing that goal and that path. And you really want to make sure that everything is set up so that you don't have to worry about it. I mean, things are going to change. There's always going to be like little bumps in the road, obviously, as life happens. But if you start off understanding all of these broader views of how, you know, legal connects to accounting, which connects to financial, connecting to the banks, connecting to marketing, to getting patients. And it's really a big circle that if you have everyone together, you're going to be able to face whatever challenges you get because someone is going to be able to help you to overcome those hurdles so that you can continue practicing. And it's just make sure that you have those people in place. That makes perfect sense. And again, it, it, always the things that ring and resonate with you the most are, the, are almost the words that you wish that you would have heard. Um, I think I'm very much been a like touch the stove once for, you know, for marketing and for things like that. And, and I think that it's it's really it would have been 
nice to know someone like you when I first started to give me that checklist of what I needed to, instead of having to go to legal zoom and get kind of some BS answer and then have to try and track it down to find out what it was. All right, try someone else at legal zoom. Maybe, maybe they weren't that good. Maybe they just didn't know. Oh no, this, this legal zoom really isn't working all that well for me, but now I've already invested hundreds of dollars and more importantly, many hours into it. Um, It would have been nice to have someone at the beginning say, okay, like, this is what we're going to, this is what we need to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And again, it was pretty much financial. It wasn't even like I was proud. I didn't, I knew I didn't know this stuff. I just didn't feel like I could afford it. But with more people breaking out of firms and starting their own, I would encourage, even if you end up um, just talking to a couple of them and, and saying like, maybe I can't afford this, talk to a few people such as Stephanie that do uh, do practice for themselves. And the chances are it, it will fall into the an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure category. So Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit? Well, right now, anyone who's in the audience wants to ask any questions, go for that. Now we'll do a little Q and a, if anyone wants to have any specific things answered, but can you one, tell us where to find you. And then two, just, we talked a lot about, about a lot of different things and went a lot of different directions. Any closing remarks that you want to, what's, what's in, in lawyer speak? It's your um, closing argument. It's, it doesn't have any argument. Your closing <laughs> statement. Just, just take us through and anything that you think is important for people to hear right here, right now would be great. Sure. Um, as, as a whole, you've heard me use the word protection pretty much the entire time. Yeah. Um, that's the goal. Okay. Is, is to make sure that you're protected when you're working whoever, whatever practitioner, whatever field, whatever specialty, ask as many questions as you can. Make sure that you understand, you know, and if you don't know what questions to ask, ask whoever it is that you're working with, what do I need to know that I'm not asking? Because in all honesty, there's so much more to understand in order to protect not just you and your practice, but your personal assets, your patients, just to make sure that everything is in place. And, you know, whether you've already started your practice and you're having second thoughts about things or you're not sure that you're working with the right people, do research, find out people, ask someone in your field, who are you working with? Who do you like? Who can you recommend? Because in the end, it doesn't matter where you are in your career. As long as you're still working, you should always make sure that you have those people around you to help. Because again, they're all connected and it's all connected to help with your success in your career of what you went for. So I would say, you know, take a step back, look at everything, look at things that you, you know, maybe don't have is whether it's insurance, you know, um, billing, uh, you know, the, the legal contracts or, you know, consent forms, you know, are you providing everything that you can? Are you in the right commercial space? Are you marketing yourself correctly? I mean, all of these are linked and it's all questions to help you grow and to make sure that you get to the point that you want to and even exceed it, which is ultimately the goal, right? So, yeah. um, you know, so, you know, look, uh, I, you can find me online. I mean, my, uh, my website's uh, rodenlegal.com. I'm always happy to help guide and consult with anyone, you know, to see, um, you know, that's how you and I first started was we had a conversation to see, you know, what questions you had and to see if I was able to help. And, and I'm always willing to do that. You know, um, if I'm not the right fit or I can't answer those questions, I will refer you to someone else who can. 
Yeah, and that's something that I'll, I'll sing your praises for, for a moment here. One, it was nice when we first spoke how you could relate this back to me on a personal level from having coming from a, a family of healthcare practitioners. Either way, we were going to work together, but there was just something that made me walk out of that conversation like, that's the right person to be working with. Two, how can people sign up for your newsletter? There are very few newsletters that I actually read every word of. You make them very easy, very digestible. Where can people sign up for that? Um, you can go to my website and you can you can put your name in or uh, you can email me. You can email through info at rodenlegal.com and I'll be more than happy to include you um, on the list so that you can start doing it. The newsletter comes out, as you know, once a month. You know, I, I try to do it on very pertinent topics. Uh, there are a couple that just came out recently about COVID. So I try to do it with what's going on in the time period so that they are, you know, they're useful in that sense. Uh, I do like getting suggestions. So if there's some topic that you would like to hear or read about, please let me know because I'm always willing to do that. It helps with uh, with my ideas because I feel like I run out of ideas to do. But um, but yeah, no, you can you can go to the website. You can sign up that way. You can email at info at roadandlegal.com and I'll be happy to add anyone onto that newsletter. Yeah, and it really is great. It's great to have you as far as the uh, can, can you spell out the website real quick? Sorry, just sure. you are a question. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's R-O-D as in David, I-N as in Nancy, L-E-G-A-L dot com, rodenlegal.com. It's awesome. And then info at to be, if you want to specifically get at it, I highly suggest that. And it is nice. I think you and I practice the same way. It's like, you're not just hiring me, you're hiring all of my friends that know how to do things that maybe I don't know how to do. And if I don't know, I'm not saying that I can always fix your problem, but I bet you I know someone who can. <laughs> and it's nice that as far as your newsletter and your network, you're very sharing and we really appreciate that. Well, Stephanie, I wanna say thank you so much for bringing your kind wisdom to us today. This was lovely. Um, everyone else, thank you for attending. And for anyone who's just listening, thank you so much for being a part of our movement towards movement. We'll see you next week on Fire 5.